I really have a, a unique path in that I had one job in mind, and I and I got it. It took me 14 years to get to the Cubs beat, mm-hmm. but I ended up getting getting my dream job. Welcome to the Love Journalism Show. I'm your host, Darren Samuelson. We're on the road recording from Cincinnati, Ohio, where I interviewed Jordan Bastian, the Chicago Cubs beat writer for MLB.com. We were both in town for baseball, me as a fan, him as a journalist. Sadly, the game on the day we recorded had been postponed due to rain. Jordan and I caught up a few hours later at a downtown tap room, the Copper and Flame, where we talked about a sports writing career and the early days of the 2023 regular baseball season. Hope you enjoy. Let's start with how on earth do you become a beat writer for the Chicago Cubs? <laughs> Man, well, I took a, a pretty circuitous route. Um, when I was a kid, you know, all I liked to do was play baseball. And then I was just into all the types of different arts, whether it was writing, drawing, whatever. Um, that was kind of my area of focus in school and and all that, and when my baseball career ended after high school, I just was like, well, I still want to be in baseball somehow. Um, you know, when it was only JUCOs and Division threes talking to me, I said, I think the press box might be uh, where I'm destined to wind up. So I went to Michigan State for journalism, and I went there solely for, I want to be a baseball beat writer. Um, and, you know, a lot of my professors were trying to, like, expand my my view, like my, you know, my, my horizons. And I said, no, no, I got a pretty singular focus here. Um, and I worked for the Lansing state journal in college. Uh, I convinced them to let me cover Michigan state baseball a little bit. We had the Lansing lug nuts minor league team there. Um, I got to help out with a lot of stuff like that. Like Mark Pryor came in for a rehab assignment. That was a big deal. Um, and then just serendipitously, my editor at the time at LSJ, knew someone who worked for MLB.com. And I didn't even know MLB.com at the time had internships or anything like that, a program that our company used to run. And so I'm working, typing up agate pages, covering high school, covering minor league baseball, a little bit of MSU sports. And MSU uh, MLB.com contacted me while I was at MSU and uh, kind of were like, hey, we have this internship program. Would you be interested? And, yeah. Um, so that was kind of the job came to me in terms of the the door opening. You know, I know I worked hard and put myself in position to get that opportunity. But once I was in with MLB.com on the internship front, it just kind of took off from there. I, you know, I started off as the Toronto Blue Jays beat writer for five years um, from 2006 through 2010, and then I moved to Cleveland for to cover the Cleveland then Indians now Guardians from 2011 through 2018 and then they called me and said do you want the Cubs job and yeah that was like my goal the whole time so I really have a a unique path in that I had one job in mind and I and I got it it took me 14 years to get to the Cubs beat Mm -hmm. but I ended up getting getting my dream job what's it like covering professional baseball yeah it's it's interesting, right? Because it's such a long season. Um, you know, for spring training, I'm there for six weeks. During the season, I cover the bulk of the games. So 162 games, I'm probably at, you know, 130 or, or so, sometimes more than that. And then the postseason. So it's it's really interesting in that it really is a consuming daily 
you know, we joke around on the beat. Like, we see each other more than we see our family. Um, you know, I'm lucky to have my wife who I've been with since we were in high school. And she, her line is that she knew what she was getting into, but she didn't know what she was getting into. Um, but I think I'm kind of lucky that she kind of knew what was what I was wanting to be and do. And she's been super supportive. And, you know, we really have worked together on with our family on making sure there's stability at home with the kids while I'm traveling because it can be really a, a grind because you're away from home a lot. And my wife ends up being like a single parent for chunks of the year. Um, but, you know, it's just, yeah, it's, I think it's different than a lot of other sports because of just how long the season is, how often we're there. You know, I joke that as a reporter, you want to become like part of the furniture in the clubhouse. You know, you're just part of what the players see every day. They get used to your face. They get used to talking to you. Um, talking to you when you're not recording interviews, you know, just those little conversations in between. Because really, just like the staff that's there, we're there all year. We're part of that room. Um, and I think that's a really unique thing to baseball. Mm. Is the 130 games, I mean, can you remember every single game as, uh, as the season is over? Or does it all blur together? It, it, some of it blurs together. I was actually telling someone a story today. You know, we were standing in the Cincinnati clubhouse and just I'm a big visual memory person and all of a sudden I can start seeing myself in different parts of the room and I'm remembering different conversations with different players and I'm like oh that's where I was talking to Francisco Lindor when he came up as a rookie and that's where I was talking to Chris Bryant when he made the all-star team in 2019 and it's like so for me in terms of remembering it it's like I'll walk into these rooms and all these ballparks and press boxes and it's like all those stories sort of flood back to you mm-hmm. because uh, because of those moments you've had. But in terms of like the individual games, it, you know, sometimes you do remember. Um, I think I'm getting older; my memory's not as strong. I used to be like encyclopedic about stuff, but um, now it's it's that's kind of how I recall. But man, it's just there's so many stories throughout the long year, and you know, I think I'm in my 18th season doing this now. So yeah, they do start to blend together mm-hmm. a little bit. So take me through, what, what's it actually like during game? Are you keeping score uh, yourself? Yeah, I actually designed my own scorebook many years ago. Um, this year, I feel like every year it keeps growing where I get more reporters going, hey, I like your book, can I get one? This year I've made seven books for people on my beat. Um, personalized the covers with some inside jokes. Um, but yeah, I love keeping score. I feel like it's like an art form, and that's just sort of something that takes you back to when I was a kid in the stands and mm-hmm. getting the scorecard at Wrigley Field from that usher right when you walk in or when I was a kid sitting in my grandpa's house and I had a notebook and I would draw a scorebook in my notebook. I still have some of those in a box in my basement. Keeping score to me is just sort of like that one of those traditions that I love to do. Some people do it on their iPads now. Mm-hmm. Um, with Digitally, I still just love having that uh, that book in front of me and it's good to flip through there when throughout the year when you are looking stuff up. But just in terms of my day to day, you know, yeah, uh, it's you know for like a let's use a seven o'clock game as an example. I mean, I'm getting to the ballpark at two two thirty. You know, we have our clubhouse access before the game where you go down, you talk to the players, talk to the manager that day before the game. You have your game, and then we go back down post game, um, talk to them about the game and anything like that. And it's just. You know, for like a seven o'clock game, sometimes I'm not out until midnight. Sometimes later, uh, it's a it's a long chunk. I remember someone in my family once years ago was like, "Oh, so you just show up at first pitch and you leave when the game's over?" And I'm like, 
no, they're not just paying me to go watch the game. Like, I, got, I have, like, a whole work day involved here. But it's a lot of fun. And, you know, like I said, you sort of just – you get into that daily rhythm and, and building those relationships. And, you know, much like you had to do in D.C., it's like it's, it's all those little mini conversations – um, you know, in between the stories where you're building that trust, you're building that rapport, and, um, and really getting to know these guys and getting to tell tell those stories for the fans. Mm-hmm. What's competition like for a baseball writer? Yeah, I'm sure uh, baseball writers from like earlier eras have much better stories about kind of the uh, the uh, toe-to-toe competition stuff um, when they actually had the the next day's paper is when that breaking news would hit. You know, we live in this era now of um, a lot of the national reporters are getting the, the scoops right away and us on the ground on the local or, or you know, team side, it's, it's, it's getting harder for us to break the big stories, but a lot of times you'll find we're the first with, like, the context and that stuff. And I think we all get along really well in the press box and we all are competitive and there will be stuff where we're reading each other and there's little nuggets of information and, um, you know, feature storytelling where people get anecdotes and details that maybe you didn't get or you're going, oh, man, I didn't think to, to pry a little harder on that. And that side of the competition is really interesting. Um, but I think our it may, I'm on a unique beat. We're all pretty friendly. We're all on the younger side. Um, and I don't think it's as cutthroat, so to speak, as a lot of the stories I've heard older ball writers tell about just you know reporters who like get into fights and, and stuff like that and mm-hmm. uh you know those days seem to be waning but it's still competitive but it's it's competitive in a more in a friendlier way i guess i would say have the players changed over the years that you've been covering the sport in terms of having access now to twi- to tweeting themselves and getting their word out i mean every player seems to have a brand yep. and that's that's seemingly what it's all about these days yeah, like Marcus Stroman's a huge example of that. You know, he's got like his own shoe line. You know, he's always uh, putting stuff on Instagram and, and tweeting about different things he's trying to promote. And that's a much larger reality now among players. A lot of play- there's other players who have launched their own like multimedia platforms because they want to be the ones who present mm-hmm. their news first in their package uh, rather than have it go through the media first. You see that a lot more now. I also remember when players were first on Twitter, um, if someone would tweet something semi-controversial, it was like, you're like, oh, man, this is like big news. There's so much noise on Twitter and social media now that I feel like a lot of that stuff doesn't get as covered as it used to. It used to be like, oh, man, did you see what he said on Twitter? Now it's almost like, no, I didn't see what he said on Twitter because everyone's saying so much on Twitter, it's hard to keep up. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it has changed and evolved in that way where you have to monitor all these players' social medias, make sure nothing crosses the line where you do have to cover it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say it's uh, there's just so much noise there. Um, but, yeah, in terms of brand building, I mean, that's so much more of a – of a uh, product of how the players operate now. And I remember covering other players where you would have to kind of keep that in mind when they would start talking about certain things to be like, I had, you have to remember you're not on their marketing team. You're here to cover them as a baseball player. And so then you got to make sure like you're staying in your right lane of covering what they are, who they are, what they're about, what they're doing behind the scenes off the field, but making sure you're not in the lane of like, 
serving as their marketing guy. So that, that is something you have to sort of keep in, in your mind as you're covering a lot of this stuff nowadays, mm-hmm. which, and that's a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Are the players actually um, different in the clubhouse because of it too, because they know that they have ways to get around you? Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that. I would say we see with certain players, like I said, I think some of them will maybe put stuff out first on social and then talk to the media, mm-hmm. right? Like this year, for instance, Marcus Stroman announced on Twitter that he was the opening day starter um, before he was, I think, supposed to. But he wanted to be the one that announced it. You know, David Ross had given him the news. He wanted to announce that he was the opening day starter. Like, he kind of has that right as that guy. It's his social media account. You know, maybe some people somewhere were rolling their eyes at it or whatever. But he announced it first, and then we go talk to him. And I think that is a, a bigger reality with players now where they – they want to be the ones in some players' cases uh, where they put that stuff out there first or they have their own team of people that want to put that out. Uh, But there's also a huge swath of players that that's not how they operate. Mm -hmm. There's a few guys very clearly around the league who are building their own brand, Mm -hmm. and then you still have a lot of the old-school players Mm -hmm. too. What else is different in being a beat writer covering baseball over the last 15, 20 years that you've been doing this? Man, what else is different? Um, like I said, uh, I think the immediacy of everything now, um, just where chasing a story can come down to minutes now rather than hours or to the next day. Um, you know, you're trying to work those angles and get those confirmations when news is breaking at a much faster rate than in the past. Uh, I think just the, the way players are is a lot different. You know, one of the big stories this year, not a big story, but just the storyline with the Cubs this year is just how collaborative the veterans are with the rookies. And to a point, like, veterans will see a nasty pitch that Hayden Wisniewski's throwing, and they want to know, like, hey, how do you throw that? And, they, like, they're picking his brain. And I remember, you know, sounding like an old guy here, but I remember when I first broke in, and it was like the veterans were over here, the young guys were over here, they had to go through their rites of passage, um, they had to kind of walk on eggshells around some of the veterans. Um, I feel like a lot of that is changing where it's, no, we're all in the big leagues together. We're all collaborative, and I think that's for the better. Um, coaching staffs are huge now. You know, there used to be just the pitching coach. Now it's like a pitching infrastructure team. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think a lot of that's different. Um, but I think a lot of these changes uh, are, are for the better mm-hmm. for the game. What's been the biggest surprise for you in your journalism career so far? Biggest surprise? Um, I think as we're sticking on this theme of social media, I think it's the pace of it. Um, I think I couldn't have imagined when I broke in in 2005 kind of the pace of having to cover things in the year 2023. Um, I think back then it was like you had more time to really sit down and, and maybe craft and work on a story. And now because of the daily nature and just the swiftness of the pace of, of news and the way it's moved and the way that's changed. I think that's that's kind of the biggest change that's happened over the course of my career. How many stories are you working on at any one time? You know, I like to, I like to joke that my back pocket always has something in it. Um, I think that's going back to your what's changed in the way we deliver content. Like, the game story's dead. You know, we don't really write game stories anymore. It's more about storytelling, finding out um, what's the story of the day that you can really zero in on, whether you're going micro or macro. Uh, and I think that has sort of eliminated 
the need to cover everything on any given day. And so you might be doing a bunch of interviews. You know, I'm speaking from like the way our company specifically is presenting news. It's I might be doing a bunch of interviews, but then it's they're not all getting delivered to you content-wise on that day. It's I'm picking interviews here so I can build a story later on, or you know I have a story in mind here, so I want to make sure I'm getting the guys in the room and um, you know kind of collecting a lot of stuff to put in my back pocket for for other days down the road. So I kind of always have an inventory of things I'm working on. It might necessarily be, hey, I'm working on three stories right now. It's like I have six ideas in mind and they're all kind of going on. And then the day arrives where I go, hey, this is the day to execute that story. And I have stuff prepared for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a, I've liked that direction we've gone because you're not sort of confined to what happens specifically in that game. Like uh, the game the other day that you attended where it was a 12 to 5 Cubs win. I wrote about starting pitcher Hayden Wisniewski. You know, on other days it might have been like, well, the offense was the big was a story that day. Well, yeah, but it was Hayden Wisniewski's Cubs debut and big picture or season debut for the Cubs. Big picture wise, he's really important this year. You know, he won won this job, and there's a lot of depth there on his importance to the team and things bigger than just the game in front of me. Mm-hmm. And so on that day, it's like I can really hone in on telling his story that day and I can kind of like trust that fans saw the videos and the game recap and all that other stuff um, so I think I really like that way of, of presenting stories on a daily basis because it allows you to better kind of pace yourself and find the right moment to tell one of these stories that you're sort of constantly working on. I might have missed the memo on that one but like tell me like when did the game the gamer story concept kind of end did it is that recent or is that like kind of just been evolved over time? Uh, I think it's it's sort of been an evolution over time and I think I know my own writing style is I really have always tried to zero in on one topic and I remember thinking of a game story of like 70% would be about one thing and then you would work in a couple little other things that happened in the game and then you would circle back to that one thing to wrap it up at the end and that was sort of always my own personal game story format and I think what we've evolved toward is getting rid of those little, making sure you mention every other little thing that happened in the game section. And just really going, if your story is that one thing that you were focusing on, just write about that. And because in the, the nature of just the way people consume games now, is by the time I've put a story on that website for you to read as the fan, you already know who won and lost. You've already watched highlights whether it's on mlb.com or sports center or mlb network whatever it is and so by the time you're sitting down to click on my article you already know what happened so what am i presenting to you that's going to be supplemental or in addition to what you already know happened as a fan and i think that's where i would say within the last five years there's been this switch towards that's the best uh, mo for game coverage is if the fan already knows what happened, then what can I present to them that is like a deep dive or a trend or a feature, something where they're getting something in addition to the game content they already observed? I was noticing on MLB uh, app just recently, like clicking a new, the game story is a new concept where you 
you can basically just kind of look at the highlights now. Where you tap through it. Yeah, yeah. it's almost like an Instagram story. Mm-hmm. I think that also is you're trying to pull in a younger audience. And we're all, I mean, I'm on Instagram constantly. I don't like to look at my screen time. Um, but, and I know, like, you click, everyone's so used to clicking through stories, right? Like, oh, Darren posted a story. What's mm-hmm. he doing today? Um, and I think that's, this is a new function of, this is a way a lot of people like to consume their news. And if we can give that to them on the MOB app, then they don't necessarily need to be searching for it on Instagram. They, mm. they go, oh, I can go to the app and the MLB app and get that same story concept. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, we call that a game story or a tap story. Uh, and that's, uh, I think we started that within the last two or three years. Mm. What are some nuances in baseball writing that are different than your contemporaries in, in covering football or covering hockey or covering basketball? I kind of go back to just the, the daily grind of it that you have to remind yourself that like like so if you're covering football like every game the magnitude of it is huge because it you only play a short season and every game could be make or break for whether or not you make the playoffs right in a baseball season something that happens on April 4th may not carry that same magnitude or if you lose on April 4th yeah maybe if you're in a tight race and it comes down to one game you can look back but in the time and in the sort of this six month long narrative you know, you're not going to go, like, all in on the manager and ripping his moves and all this stuff on, on April 4th when, you know, I have six months of storytelling to do. And I think it's sort of the journey of a baseball season is so long and it sort of builds that momentum throughout uh, that whole year that I think that is really unique to a baseball season, just that long sort of um, slow burn until you get to those really... Um, intense moments in August and September and October. And I think that's kind of a separator. It's just that, that day-to-day. You know, a lot of times I leave the press box, you know, it'll be a long day, and before I leave I'll say, you know, the great thing about baseball, you get to do all this tomorrow. <laughs> you know, or I've you know seen young writers who are just like stressing over paragraphs, and it's just like, hey, man, dude, you're going to have to do this tomorrow. Like, wrap it up. Like, it's, this story you're writing right now is not – is not that important that you need to be pouring over every word. Like mm-hmm. this one, you can just get in. Yeah, and we'll do it again tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Like I think that's that's just mm-hmm. it's a beautiful part of the game too. Is it's just that rhythm and that soundtrack to the summer. And you know, I think that's I think that's a really cool part about our sport. Talk to me about work life balance a little bit for a baseball yeah. beat writer. What is that like? You're on the road. We're sitting here in a bar in Cincinnati in early April. You've got many, many, many months ahead. Yep. When do you get time off? When do you actually get to be a, a human being? Yeah, I mean, we were talking a little bit about this before we recorded, but, like, you know, my wife went to college. She was career-oriented, and when I got my job, like, we kind of made a family decision that when, when it was time to, to start building our family that, you know what, my wife's going to stay home. Um, she's going to be the stable, consistent mom, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be out on the road and, uh, you know, I always joke that, like, my kids will, maybe they'll grow up pretending that I was gone, but they'll love their mom. <laughs> no, uh, no, we have a great relationship with our kids and everything, and um, it's been awesome. And we can see the benefits of just the fact that they've had that consistent force at home. And, you know, she'll go back to work when the kids are older. And, and you know, we don't have all the luxuries maybe we would have if we were a two-income house. But it's like that's worth it because the work-life balance is real. 
uh, you know, six uh, six weeks of spring training, I'm gone. And, you know, my wife is basically a single mom for mm. six weeks. And then during the season, uh, you know, I'm there for a week at a time. And then, I, you know, our company is really good at building in breaks and making sure that we're not running to the ground. You know, uh, like I'm, I'm here in Cincinnati. Uh, we got the off day tomorrow, and then I'm off on the Friday going home. Like, they give me that extra day off to just mm. – hey, you're coming back from a road trip, take the Friday, and then go back to work after that. They're really good about building those off days so you can attend to that stuff at home. But it is like when you're when you're young, I make sure I talk to, if I go back to Michigan State and talk to college classes, the thing you don't think about when you're in college is that family aspect. It's real. The work-life balance is can be tough, but you just got to find that rhythm of it. You got to get that spouse who's on board with it. Um, and it can be a real delicate balance. You know, I know coworkers of mine who have double income houses and, you know, they make it work, but there's challenges there too. So it's, for me personally, that's kind of how we've handled it. And then you know that by the time you get to the end of that season grind, you've got the off season where I can stay in my joggers and work in my office and my kids can hang out with me for the entire winter. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get... It's, I always say it's like reverse of a teacher. A teacher gets the summers off, I get the winters off. Mm-hmm. Um, so you still get a lot of that time um, dedicated to family at home during the winter, and that's more when you shift into working the phones, talking to agents, talking to front office people, um, but you're still covering baseball because mm-hmm. it's – yeah, when the baseball season ends, I don't stop covering baseball. It's, it's a year-long mm-hmm. event. Do you talk to your – uh, colleagues in, who are covering football or covering hockey, other sports, and do you get a sense they're envious of you, vice versa? I mean, it seems like you probably have maybe the hardest of the jobs because of the number of games that you have and the, the length of that season. But tell me if I'm wrong there. That, that... Yeah, I don't know about that. Um, I think each season, I don't think I could really speak to what it's like covering the other seasons, um, the other sports. I think each one presents its own challenges, but I do think the one benefit of ours is just we do get that long off season where we are home for so, for so much of it. So mm-hmm. I think that is a, that is definitely a benefit. Like, you know, I know I'm going to be home for Thanksgiving and Christmas. I know other colleagues who don't get that. Right. So it's, I think there are pros and cons to every sport you cover. Mm-hmm. I like the rhythm of a road trip for a baseball writer. I get to be in a city for three days. If you're an NBA writer, those trips can be much shorter flying in and out. Um, I think those are those are different. So I think each one presents its own set of challenges for sure. And how do you uh, prepare for a road trip when you are going for three or six or nine days? Is it is it um, is every single one different, or do they kind of get uh, kind of repetitive and monotonous after a while? Um, you mean in term, prepare for a road trip in what way? Um, just mentally prepared for a road trip that you're going to be gone for for some period of time. Yeah. So I one thing I love I'm a big runner. Um, I love. One of the things I love is getting to these cities and going running and learning my way around. That was huge when I was younger because um, I'd never be, been to any of these cities. And I'd just throw on my running shoes and figure out my way around and learn shortcuts and run through cool neighborhoods. And, um, you know, I think one benefit now from the travel is, like, when I do get to bring my family on a trip, I know all these cities. And so I can be like, hey, here's, all, here's the restaurants we go to and, you know, all these cities now – I've found my little go-to spots and my little neighborhoods, and um, I think it's you kind of get into this rhythm of like, okay, I know 
here's going to be my daily schedule and here's what I'm going to do. So I do think the benefit, again, of being here for like three days on the road is you know if I'm on the road and I go cover this team, there's not going to be as much media. Like this trip, it was me and the two newspapers here, and the players are a lot looser on the road than they are at home Mm -hmm. where you have the full – uh, TV media, radio media from Chicago, more written outlets are there, and it can kind of be really pack reporting at Wrigley Field, and it's a little more chaotic. You get on the road, it's a little more relaxed. We're chilling in the dugout a little more. You know, we had Dansby Swanson just hanging in the dugout, you know, chewing the fat with the reporters the other day. It was really, really nice because we're getting to know him. Um, so I think that aspect of the road is really nice. So a lot of the preparation side is just like, all right, I'm going to be – it's going to be a smaller media group. So it's more when I go on this road trip, what are my checklists of, like, who can I talk to? What can I try and get more one-on-one interviews? Uh, who can I – how can I do that to, to build up some inventory of content for, for stories? So I think the road is huge in that way. Very comparable to politics if you can – when you're in the Capitol in Washington mm-hmm. – Everyone is there. The, the, the press pack is so big. But then you go and you, you go to a senator's state, you go to a congressman's yep. district, you have that exact same experience right. where the, there's a little bit of a loosening up. Yeah. For sure. What's, um, I want to ask you, about, amongst your travels around the country, where is your favorite running uh, cities? What, what are your favorite running cities? Oh, man. I love Seattle. Seattle's probably my favorite trip just across the board between the ballpark, the city, uh, getting down to the sound and running around, um, good restaurants. Just a lot of cool neighborhoods. I love Seattle. Uh, You're going to be there for the All-Star Game in... I might not, but mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, maybe. TBD on that one. Okay. I'm going to London this year, so that's cool mm-hmm. um, for the Cubs-Cardinals series. That'll be neat. I've never been overseas before. Um, but I would say, yeah, Seattle jumps to mind. Minneapolis is underrated. That's one of my favorites. There's just some cool trails between St. Paul and, and Minneapolis. And, uh, you know, even here in Cincinnati, I love getting along the riverfront and going down uh, and around that over the bridges things like that so yeah every city I get out San Francisco you know along the Embarcadero um, you know the Golden Gate Park all that stuff so I kind of get out and explore everywhere I go and I'm a big museum nerd so I like to hit up museums and things like that when I'm on the road too so like I said I love it because I get to learn all these places and then now that my kids are getting a little older, I'm looking forward to like when I can bring my son on a trip with me, bring my daughter on a trip with me, or if I get the family with me. Uh, you know, it's like I already know these places, so it's like I can plan this trip. Um, you know, for a place they haven't been, and like really make the most of it. And the running is probably helpful because of the eating. I'm sure eating on the road. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm playing for the tie a lot of the times, but uh, yeah, I got into marathoning a bit. Back in the day, I finally did another one this last year. Uh, got back into biking and running during the pandemic when I had nothing else to do. Um, when I was working from home so much, you know, the pandemic I felt like you went two ways. People either like put on a bunch of weight because they just ate, ordered takeout, or like people got in great shape. And I was on the I lost a bunch of weight because I just I get cabin fever and I constantly have to be in, in motion whether I'm at work or I'm like just doing something and uh so i'm like you know what i'm gonna get into biking i'm gonna get into i'm gonna get back into running hardcore and uh yeah pandemic was was beneficial for me in that way personally um 
I know other people didn't have the same experience. <laughs> One of the most dangerous aspects of being a sports writer, from my memory, was the free food in the press box. Oh, yeah. Has it gotten any better, or is it worse? Well, uh, it's not free. Um, those free soft serve machines, those can be trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, or the cookies in the Wrigley Field press box, you gotta, you gotta like just not look as you're walking <laughs> by. Um, but yeah, like I said, playing for the time. What advice would you have for young? Sports aspiring sports writers coming up. Yeah, I always, um, I always give three main bits of advice. One is crave criticism. I think one of the reasons that I moved as quickly as I did towards what I wanted to do was every job I had. The first thing I told my editors was, like, critique my stuff. Come to me and tell me what I could have done better in my writing. In my interviews, if you, like, see the quotes and you don't think they're good enough, you know, talk to me about, like, what questions did I ask. I wanted to know what they thought I could have done better or even what I did wrong because I thought, like, that's growth mindset. You know, I if you pat me on the back and tell me this was a great story, I'm not learning anything. And so every place I went, that was my mindset, and I think that helped carry me pretty quickly um, having that mentality. Yeah, I had one... When I was at the Lancet State Journal, I had one. I don't remember what the lead was, but I remember that it was so bad that they printed it out and they pinned it up on the bulletin board in the sports uh, sports desk. So when I came in the next day, they were all like, kind of making fun of this. Re- like, look, man, I'm in college. I've never done this before. I was on deadline. I think it was like pouring rain at this high school. And I was probably like calling the game in on the phone, and it was yeah, okay, it was a bad lead. But like, instead of being upset about it, I kind of I I told them keep that up there. I'm like you're not going to have another one that's going to be up there from me. Like I'll learn from this moment. And I thought so. I've always told people like crave criticism. Like want your bosses, your veterans to come to you, and if they start telling you, hey, I like this, but I think this could have made it better, listen to them and take the advice. Um, my other bit of advice is always just read everything and don't just read what your area is like I love reading fiction and I think like reading how fiction writers do turns of phrases and do colorful descriptions I think really can play for like my style of writing is to try and put the reader visually in my seat to try and like I want their mind's eye to be able to see what I saw like I'm being paid to be there and to tell you what happened I'm going to try and describe it so you can imagine it Um, if you didn't already click on the video at the top of my story Mm -hmm. Uh, and so for me it's read everything read your competitors read great sports writing read fiction writers read non-fiction writers read political writers just read as much as you can because you never know what type of story you're going to find a little bit of advice or or, or a little bit of like writing that you go I I like that I like that like maybe I can work that in or or a word you didn't know before anything um and then the other, the other thing I always say is just, like, accept the assignments when you're young. Accept the assignments that people turn down because you never know what's going to open a door for you. And so, like, when I worked at the State Journal or when I was an intern and, like, some other kid didn't want to go cover that event or some visiting writer didn't want to do this, like, I'd, I'd raise my hand and I'd say, I'll do it. You know, I don't know anything about high school wrestling, but I'll go, I'll go cover it because um, I thought, like, the more clips I could acquire – and the more types of stories I could do, 
um, the better my clip file and my resume was going to be. And so I think that's just like super simple. Like just if the kid next to you is turning something down, you do it um, because your editor is going to remember that. So those are kind of like for a young writer who's trying to break in. And I I think a new one in in recent years would just be like, don't be afraid to reach out in this era where you can contact me on Twitter or via email. A lot of, we were all young writers at one point and we remember each one of us. You ask any of us who helped you out, who helped you get to where you are. We all remember, right? So I think if you, like I have young writers who will pop in my inbox. I did a Zoom call with a high schooler um, a couple months ago. And I heard he got a internship um, partially because he showed initiative to reach out to journalists. So that's another thing. Like in this era, like you can reach out to people in the business and learn from them. And again, you never know who's going to open that door for you. Who were your mentors? Mine was one was when I was at Michigan State, um, Lori Ann Dickerson. She's actually the wife of Dan Dickerson, the Tigers play-by-play guy for the radio. Um, she's a professor at Michigan State and. She really challenged me when I was in college, uh, and she's continued to keep in contact with me to this day. Um, you know, a couple editors I had at Lansing State Journal. When I worked in Toronto, a great writer named John Lott, you know, really um, was very patient with sitting with me, reading what I wrote, talking about writing. Learned a lot about his style of writing because I thought he was just so descriptive. Uh, when I was in Cleveland, Paul Hoynes has been a bulldog reporter forever. Um, and, you know, I just love picking his brain about it. Just getting him in, just getting Paul Hoynes in the storytelling mode. Um, just all the stuff he covered. And, you know, there's just been so many people along the way that I think were instrumental in getting you to. Uh, I, I'm sure I could say the same thing to you. You can point to people who helped you along the way. It's, and sometimes it's people who don't even know it, right? Sometimes it's people that you're just observing. Or you're reading their work, like Jason Stark. I've gotten to know him a little bit um, as a veteran writer now, and seeing him at winter meetings and stuff. But I lived and died for Jason Stark baseball writing, right? And like, I really loved all the factual nuggets and fun tidbits, and making sure you're having fun with your writing. And if you follow my tweets, you see like I love nerdy stats and. Uh, just kind of like making dad jokes and just like making sure I'm having fun with it and recognizing that yeah I'm I'm providing entertainment I'm, I'm telling you what happened but yeah, it's you know you can have fun with this and and just kind of realize this isn't that serious all the time and I think Jason Stark was a huge influence on me in that way and um, I told him that when he made the Hall of Fame a couple years ago I was like hey you don't realize a lot of people in my age bracket how much you influenced influenced us as we were breaking into the business who else do you read now oh man i read so much i wouldn't even be able to give you a list of names um every day i have my routine reading my beat stuff um other than that it's it's sort of just like i go on the athletic i have a bunch of friends and um that i love reading um our company has a lot of great writers throughout so it's i think the list of names would be too long right now what's the uh, editor relationship like reporter editor relationship like right right now for you as you're on the road do you have one editor do you have five editors give me a sense of like we kind of so in terms of an operational standpoint on a daily basis you have like a editor size producer who you work with on a game-to-game basis and that could change on a daily basis and then you have like we have our main editor who oversees uh national league one that oversees the american league and then there's some bosses above them but really the one that i'm most in contact with is our national league editor 
uh, and she used to be on a beat within our own company. So it's nice when you're relating to someone who's been in your shoes so um, she can really uh, sympathize or empathize for situations that come up, whether it's if it's family, if it's work-related, if it's, hey, man, I need a really day off, or you, know, or you can pitch story ideas. And it's a really good relationship. I think we've, we've gotten to a really great place right now in our company of um, having the, uh, a really good family atmosphere and kind of collaborative atmosphere with our writers and with our bosses. Take me, um, for, for an average fan, what, what's one or two things that a baseball fan doesn't see that you see in the press box that you, know, you think baseball fans would appreciate knowing? Besides all the snarky comments we make <laughs> in the press box? Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think, I mean, there's that. There's that banter we have just on the beat, you know, as we're watching games together, visiting writers and us, that element. That's just what happens in the press box stays in the press box mm-hmm. sort of thing. Um, but other than that, I think it's just like when you watch a game, and I even remember this as a, as a fan growing up, don't just watch uh, the pitcher throwing the ball to the batter. You know, before that moment, look at the outfielders. Look at the infielders. Watch where they're positioning. There's a little nuance to the game of baseball that you can see sort of. There's a little nuance to the game of baseball you can see sort of from that bird's eye view that if you take your focus away from just like the broadcast element of it of pitcher throws ball, batter swings at ball, you know, you can you can see strategy playing out. So I think a lot of times when I'm watching a baseball game from the press box, I'm not always watching the pitcher. I'm looking at Dansby Swanson, where's he setting up? I'm looking at Nico Horner up the middle. I'm looking at the outfield alignment because I think I'll see something that maybe is a tell for what they're expecting, you know, or if I am watching a broadcast, a lot of times I'm paying more attention to the catcher than I am to the pitcher or the batter because I'm seeing stuff with how that catcher is setting up or what pitches he's calling that's going to tell me more about what's coming next or what they're trying to accomplish than just getting into visual cruise control of watching pitch and swing. So I think those are the things you you learn nuance-wise of um, – of what you're, how to watch a baseball game. The other thing is, like, I always got my binoculars there, and a lot of times I'm looking for, as a writer, I'm looking for reaction, right? So when a pitcher gives the ball to the manager, I watch him every step from mound to dugout because I want to see, does he do anything? Is there, like, a body language something? Does he say something? You know, or, uh, you know, there's other players where I can see other interactions um, where I'm always trying to, you know, look at the coaches, trying to figure out, like, are there just little cues between the lines that I can pick up on? And maybe I find something to ask about later. And maybe it unearths a, a little nugget or a little story, or even if it's off the record, a little insight about something that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, yeah, when I watch a baseball game, it's a lot more than just watching the, the pitch and the swing. Mm-hmm. Mostly uh, people who are watching uh, what happens in the locker room afterwards. Uh, I mean, you don't get a chance to really see it, except for maybe in postseason, yeah. per se. Um, I mean, is it as insane as it looks on television, that it's just like a million reporters around one player? <laughs> or do you get to kind of grab a player and pull him off to the side and say, hey, I did notice David Ross was uh, looking at you a little bit weird. And Can you do that without 40 reporters behind you? Uh, yeah. yeah. So at home, I would say there's a lot more pack mentality at home. But I think one thing I try to do um, 
is like and again it depends on what story I'm writing that day like what's my topic but sometimes those little things like I mentioned that I'm looking for in a game like if I notice a guy hits a homer but instead of watching the guy around the bases I focus in on the dugout and I look for people's reactions in the dugout Um, maybe I see something where the packs around the guy over here but I see that other player that I know is his reaction and I'll kind of go over and talk to him for a little bit maybe I get a nugget or a quote from him but it, it can be that real big pack mentality stuff you see on it can be that pack mentality stuff you see on TV um, it's very much like that all the time especially when you're in that home environment when it's all like I said all those TV and radio folks in addition to uh, the large Chicago beat writing core. Um, but as writers, a lot of times, too, after the cameras are off and moved up, we'll, we'll have the secondary group that walks up to that player after the cameras are gone. And there's so many players, and again, I'm sure the same in politics. You get them on camera, they act one way, camera goes off, walks away, and you get like a different side of them, or they just loosen up. Maybe they drop a few more expletives because they know like you're either going to clean it up or be smart about how you write it, or mm-hmm. turn the recorders off and you can chat off the record. There's a lot of that stuff you don't see in the in the media presentation of the interviews that mm-hmm. that does happen behind the scenes. Yeah. What's the um, with the changes this year uh, on the rules front? You got a pitch clock. We've only been a couple of days into this, but yep. what's your early early read on? Has that sped up the game? or? Yeah, it has by a lot. I think the product looks a lot better. We're seeing stolen bases are up a ton. Mm-hmm. The success rate of stolen bases, is that like a record high right now? Um, I think it's accomplishing what it was trying to accomplish. And I've actually like, you know, you get a few elderly fans in your inbox who complain about oh, these newfangled rules and stuff. And I am kind of find that humorous because these rules are actually aimed at getting the game back to the game that that guy liked back in the day. They're trying to get it back to the good old days, right? Um, I've really enjoyed the rule changes we've seen so far. I'm still not 100% on board with the runner and extra innings. Mm -hmm. I wish maybe we delayed it until a later extra inning. Maybe we get to the 12th and then we, I don't know, something like that. I'm I'm not fully on board with that, but the rules we've had this year, banning the shift, um, the pitch clock, I think it's accomplishing what it's trying to accomplish. You know, we're seeing faster game, more action. Um, and again, it's been a small sample, but when you take the whole the league sample, it's been really, really positive. And then the schedule is different too. We're not right. the Cubs are not going to St. Louis a million times in the season uh, like like in past years. Yeah, and I think that's good, especially in a division like the Central, um, where the Pirates and the Reds aren't necessarily as competitive yet. So. Do you really need to play the Pirates and Reds that much? I think it'll be a better test of, like, for the speaking about the Cubs specifically, if you're going to be a competitive, want to be a contender team, this is going to give them an opportunity to play more teams in that bracket, test their medal, and see, like, are you legitimately what you think you are? Um, so I think it's going to be really interesting. I like just for baseball fans, too, just being able to see players they wouldn't normally get to see. I think there's just nothing but benefits there. And interleague play is more as well, too. We've got mm-hmm. now, what, like seven or eight series in the course of the season or nine compared, yeah. compared to previously? Yeah, like they're playing Texas when they go back to Wrigley. That's different. Mm-hmm. So I think it's good. Like I said, if you're a fan who is craving to see Shohei Otani and Mike Trout, but you're living in a National League city, like, mm-hmm. chances are you're going to get to see your team play those guys. And I think like when you're trying to continue to spread baseball and, and win over young fans – these are the things you, you do, and I think it's working. I think it's been great. 
Jordan, thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, no problem.